Today we finish up a six-week series that we've been doing through six different psalms. I'm hopeful that the series has been an encouragement to you and your prayer life and your everyday life as worship because as God's people, we are called to worship the Lord and be worshipers who give and live as a way of life, not just Sunday mornings, but seven days a week, 365. Every time we have an opportunity, when we open up our Bibles, every time, whether it be in our homes, with a community group, around a kitchen table, on a Sunday morning, every time when we open up the scriptures, we have an opportunity to learn about who our God is. The scriptures reveal to us his nature, his character. Pages reveal him to us, and as we get to know him, we grow in our worship of him. We grow in our understanding of how great and truly awe-inspiring he is. In this psalm, I want us to see three different, three different things. The psalmist is going to describe who the Lord is. He's going to recount works the Lord has done, works that reveal his character, reveal his nature. And so we get a picture of who the Lord is in Psalm 111. And then we also see what our response is to be to such a great God. And our response is to be wholehearted worship. And then what I love about this, this passage is we get some practical reminders with, with some of the verses of, all right, what does wholehearted worship look like? And so I want us to walk away with four practical reminders of what that might look like. Psalm 111 is a corporate psalm of praise, so it's fitting for us to consider this in the context of a corporate gathering of the church. And we're going to end up reading this psalm probably a, a few different times throughout this message. So let's go ahead and look at it now and read through it. Verse 1, hallelujah, I will praise the Lord with all my heart. In the assembly of the upright and in the congregation, the Lord's works are great, studied by all who delight in them. All that he does is splendid and majestic. His righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. He has provided food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works by giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are truth and justice. All his instructions are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever, enacted in truth and in uprightness. He has sent redemption to his people. He has ordained his covenant forever. His name is holy and awe-inspiring. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who follow his instructions have good insight. His praise endures forever. So the first question I want us to consider is, as the psalmist considers, is who is the Lord? And again, to describe who the Lord is, he's pointing back to works of the Lord that reveal the nature and the character of, of God. And we get this principle in our lives this, that, that outward actions reveal the inward character. So, for instance, the husband who serves and loves his wife in a sacrificial way. Or the employee who chooses integrity when, when no one is looking. The man or woman who flees sexual temptation and pursues faithfulness. These reveal the character. The member of the church who seeks to reconcile and pursue peace with someone who they have sinned against or been sinned against. Or the student who rejects mocking the kid that is unique and chooses kindness instead. The mom or dad who chooses a patient tone of voice when you've reminded your kid for the umpteenth time something you've reminded them 
of for many times. Or the Christ follower who, who finds practical ways to, to display goodness to their neighbor. The outward actions reveal that inward character. We see this in Galatians 5, where Paul's talking about works of the flesh or fruit of the Spirit, the what leads or rules our hearts internally, what reigns over our hearts, will present itself in an outward way, will reveal itself. So as it relates to the Lord, when we see His outward works, when we see Him save and provide and comfort and strengthen and lead and protect, all of that reveals His goodness and His power. Verse 1 again, Hallelujah, I will praise the Lord with all my heart in the assembly of the upright and in the congregation. So the psalmist is giving a call to worship to the people of God. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. But also saying, I will also be praising the Lord. Not just you, but me. And not just you, but us in a collective nature. We will hold nothing back when it comes to giving worship to the Lord. And he gives two examples of places that we will praise the Lord. He says, the assembly of the upright and in the congregation. The assembly of the upright is a picture of, of a believers only in this gathering. It's smaller, probably more private. In our context, think more like community group or a membership, uh, a members only gathering. In the congregation, that phrase, this is more like a Sunday gathering. We are in the midst of right now. So in the public gathering and in a group this size, we have believers in Christ and those who are not yet believers in Christ. We have those who are on a narrow road that leads to life and those who are on a wide road that leads away from life and toward destruction. And our prayer is that for those of you who, here who don't know the Lord yet, that you would recognize that He's at work in your life, drawing you to Himself, and He desires for you to walk on a narrow road that leads to life. So in both these gatherings, in the assembly of the upright, in the congregation, whether it be with brothers and sisters in the Lord or in public spaces such as this one, we are called to give wholehearted worship to the Lord. So listen, gathering together weekly in this, in this congregation is a vital weekly rhythm. It is not one that we can forsake. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 specifically calls us and says, hey, listen, some are going to be in the habit of giving this up. Some are going to think that they have other priorities. Don't be like them. Don't forsake the gathering. Make this a weekly priority because you and I need this. We need this more than we realize it. Sometimes I've walked into a community group throughout the years or even on a Sunday morning and thought, I really don't want to be here. And I walk away going, I needed to be there. Thank you, Lord, for this reminder. And that includes when I'm up on this stage. There's been some Sundays where I'm like, I just don't, I don't think I have the energy for this. But the Lord uses His Word, His people, song, and says, I needed that. My heart needed that. As we walk into this gathering, as we drive to this building, we bring our wholehearted worship to this place. We are not here to receive worship. We are here to bring our worship to this space. The team is not here to perform and we are passive. No, they are actively leading us so that we might actively 
participate and bring our worship. If you have kids back in Sun Chasers, they gather together in large group worship. So if you have kids back there, I encourage you, as you prepare, you know, try, to get, try to get them here. You're trying to keep them alive. You're trying to feed them. You're trying to wake them up. You're trying, not to, uh, have, a, you're trying to have a patient tone as you walk with them in the morning. But in all of that, especially as they walk back, say, bring your worship this morning, kids. Bring your worship and joy singing. Remind them of the, this weekly rhythm that God's people have to gather together. Verse 1 again. Hallelujah. I will praise the Lord with all my heart in private, in public, with believers, with unbelievers, because this wholehearted worship is not reduced to a section of our lives. So then starting in verse 2, the psalmist begins to describe who the Lord is through his works, what he has done, and keep in mind the context of where Psalm 111 is written or where it falls in your Bible. It follows Genesis and Exodus and the story of the Israelites moving into the promised land. It follows that whole journey, and yet it falls before the crowning glory of God's work of the gospel. Jesus Christ coming, being born of a virgin, living the sinless life, dying the death that was ours to die, substituting himself and then rising again on the third day, ascending to heaven, one day returning. Psalm 111 follows or is in between these two sections. So the psalm points back to who the Lord is, and yet it foreshadows and points us, back, points us forward to here's who the Lord is and what we'll see in the years to come. So let's read again verses 2 through 10. And I want, I want you to see how the psalmist describes the Lord, the words he uses. The Lord's works are great. Studied by all who delight in them. All he does is splendid and majestic. His righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. He has provided food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works by giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are truth and justice. All his instructions are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever, enacted in truth and in uprightness. He has sent redemption to his people. He has ordained his covenant forever. His name is holy and awe-inspiring. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who follow his instructions have good insight. His praise endures forever. Throughout the Psalms, we often get a picture of of the Lord being described as a king. Royalty, majesty, splendor are his. We see that here. All the king does and all his works and all his decrees and all the words that flow from his mouth are good and true and trustworthy. He is a king of justice and holiness, a gracious and compassionate king. Loved ones, are you worshiping the king of kings with your whole heart as a way of life? with your whole heart? Is there some section of your heart or life that you've kind of quarantined off away from his good reign and his good rule and his good authority? 
If so, bring it to him today. Lay it before his throne. He's too good. He's too wise. He's too powerful. He's too loving for you not to lay it before him and say, I trust you with this. I no longer trust in myself. I trust in you. So what the psalmist is doing here is tracking along and recounting the works of God that have taken place from Genesis through the story of the Israelites and all, not some, but all of those works are great. And all those works display the greatness of our God. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the works of His hands. So from Genesis 1 and 2, and unfolding throughout the whole pages of Scripture, are work after work after work that reveal how good and awesome our God is. So when we step into creation... No matter what season we are in, no matter where we are at in this globe, not just at beaches and mountains, believe it or not, but when we step into creation, we see our God on display. We see the intricate nature of who he is. We see his creativity. We see his orderliness. We see his power. This season specifically, spring, green and life and color shooting up from brown and dead. It's a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of the resurrection. It's a picture of hope and living hope. Creation reveals his splendor and his majesty. But the work of the Lord is not just in creation. It's also the works that he has done for his people. And those works, they flow from his character and our, our God is never contrary never acts contrary to his character. Whatever the Lord does, he does in accordance to his character. It's in line with his goodness, his truth, his holiness. And so who is the Lord? Well, in verse 4, the, the psalmist uses that phrase of gracious and compassionate. It's used throughout Scripture. We see it in Exodus 34, in the story of the Israelites. They're at Mount Sinai. Moses is before the Lord, and the Lord says this, starting in verse 5. The Lord came down in a cloud, stood with him there, and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And then verse 6, the Lord passed in front of him, Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. The wondrous works of the Lord, they flow from his name. In the story of the Israelites, we see that. Israelites are living in bondage to the Egyptians. They have no hope of setting themselves free. They have no strength to be able to set themselves free. But the Lord, who is great, brings plagues upon Pharaoh and the Egyptians and overcomes evil breaks them free from slavery, parts the Red Sea, allows them to cross over safely and securely. And the only credit is not to the people who are walking with walls of sea next to them. No, the only credit goes to the one who parted the Red Sea. And so they get on the other side. They begin to worship. The Lord crushes the enemy, overcomes them with the coming back together of the Red Sea. The Lord gives his people his, his law at Mount Sinai, which is for their good and for their life. He provides miraculous food from heaven, living water from a rock, leads them into the promised land. 
the inheritance that has been promised to them, overcomes enemies in miraculous and weird ways, but the Lord is good and overcomes enemies. These are examples of the works the psalmist is referring to here. Works that flow from his character. And all those works prior to Psalm 111 point us forward to the gospel and the greatest work the Lord will do. The Old Testament is pointing us forward to the cross and resurrection and revealing throughout the whole Genesis to Malachi, revealing our desperate need for the gospel, our desperate need for good news. The Exodus story is foreshadowing a greater redemption to come, a greater freedom to come, where Jesus Christ, the righteous one, the one who is the fullness of God, the Son of God, all the divine attributes exist in Him because He is God. Jesus will come to a people who are enslaved. You and me, chained up to our selfish desires, chained up to our sin with no hope of breaking free on our own. With no salvation inside in our own strength. Jesus will come to proclaim freedom for the captives and good news for those who are in need of healing from the disease of sin. Redemption has come through faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. And the work of the gospel that the Lord has done, it reveals his character. The Lord did not set aside or ignore his holiness, justice, or truth. He's the same yesterday and today. So, so he didn't say, you know, sin, we get to the New Testament, sin really has no consequences, it's no big deal. Or, well, I know people have rebelled against my loving and good authority and rejected me as king, but, but, but it's all right. If the Lord would have done that, at one point been holy and just towards sin and then changed, hit the New Testament and said, nah. If his character had changed, then he's not worthy of our worship. And he is certainly not trustworthy if he can change. Because the idea of putting your faith and trust in a God whose character one day is holy, one day unholy, one day merciful, one day unmerciful. Putting your faith and trust in such a God is terrifying, unsettling, and at the least unhelpful. But our God, loved ones, is eternal. Same yesterday, today, forever. He's the same in Genesis, into Revelation, Old Testament, New Testament. We serve and worship a covenant and promise-keeping God. A God who is holy and just and yet also gracious and compassionate. And we see those collide in the gospel. We see those collide on the, on the cross. That sin has consequences, but He is gracious and compassionate to send His one and only Son so that whoever believes in Him might not perish but have everlasting life. The just and the justifier, the holiness of God, and yet the compassion of our God on display in the cross. Five times in this passage, the word forever is used. His character is forever. He will remember His covenant to His people forever. His word is established forever. He is the eternal King whose praise, as verse 10 tells us, endures forever. This is who the Lord is. And so we respond to him in wholehearted worship. But what does that look like? I see four descriptions in this psalm. The first one, wholehearted worship means to study and delight in him. 
Verse 2, the Lord's works are great, studied by all who delight in them. Our study of the Lord reveals to us, through the word, it, it leads to our delight in Him. The more we know Him, the more we delight in Him and enjoy Him. One key piece of marital counsel that Heather and I always give to couples, whether engaged or married or anywhere along there, doing healthy or in full-blown crisis, is don't stop being a student of one another. Keep learning about your spouse and who they are and what they love and what they don't and how they tick and how they talk. Be a lifelong student of your spouse because as you study them and they study you, and the delight factor in your marriage will increase. It will increase. When you study something, whether it's a person a subject in school, college, something for your occupation, a doctrine. You know what you don't do when you study? You don't glance at it once in a while. You don't ignore it. Why? Because it's not enough. Glancing and ignoring, it doesn't lead to success in the classroom. It doesn't lead to growing study. One pastor said this, the more one gazes, the more one sees. The one the more one gazes, the more one sees. Are you gazing at and meditating and memorizing and dwelling in the Scriptures? If that's not a regular habit of your life, begin in small bites starting tomorrow. Start in this psalm or start in Psalm 145. Just gazing at, dwelling on, reading it out loud, hearing the Scriptures reveal to you who the Lord is. Wholehearted worship means we study and delight in Him. Wholehearted worship also means we remember His works. Verses 3 and 4, All that He does is splendid and majestic. His righteousness endures forever. He has caused His wondrous works to be remembered. This is one reason why Jesus called us to regularly remember Him in communion. Remember the work Jesus did that led to redemption and freedom. Because when we begin to forget his works, when we forget the gospel, then we will eventually slide toward one of two destinations. We will slide toward either legalism or license. If we forget the gospel, we might slide toward legalism. And legalism is, is simply this, this, this idea that I've earned the grace of God. I was good enough. I've obeyed the law well enough for him to accept me and set me free. And then we project that self-righteous and kind of haughty, pharisaical type of attitude onto others. And we expect them to measure up to the gospel. We don't necessarily extend grace because we're not good receivers of grace. Legalism. On the other side, if we forget the gospel, we slide toward license. Well, the grace of God is a license for me to do whatever I want to do. So if this command in Scripture or this theme in Scripture or this word from the Lord in a God-breathed-out word doesn't suit me, it doesn't fit me, or doesn't fit the culture or fit my heart right now, that's no big deal. I got the grace of God. And we begin to see the Scriptures kind of like a smorgasbord. We pick and choose what we like and we discard what we don't. Neither legalism or license leads to a wholehearted worship. It 
rather moves us toward a worship of self. We are called to be a remembering people, a people who remember the gracious and powerful works the Lord has done. So as we remember, may it lead us to a life of worship. And consider this, it's not just communion. But when we go out and make disciples, when we are ambassadors and witnesses and testify to the gospel, we are a remembering people. Because we forget what we don't proclaim. We forget what doesn't ever leave our lips. When we proclaim the gospel, when we go out and make disciples, and here's the good news of Jesus, let me tell you about my faith. When those things leave our lips, our ears hear that, and we remember the gospel. Wholehearted worship means we remember his works. Wholehearted worship also means we trust his word. Verses 6 and 7, he has shown his people the power of his works by giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are truth and justice. All his instructions are trustworthy. Or verse 10, those who follow his instructions have good insight. Trustworthy, meaning his instructions, his word are stable. They're sure, like the, like the chair you're sitting on. It's certain. Trustworthy also means his instructions are decided as an earthly judge throws down that gavel and it hits the wood. That pronouncement is clear. End of debate. No backspacing, no deleting, or, well, that doesn't really apply anymore. This is one reason why it's, it's this unbiblical thing that we've kind of begun to think as Christians that I can love Jesus with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And at the same time, I can say I really don't have interest in following the Scriptures. Those two don't, don't mesh. You don't see those two come together in the Word of God. Rather, as God's people, we are seeking to love Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We are saying... I'm going to live my life under the good and loving authority of the one who loves me and the one who has saved me and the one who set me free. I'm going to trust his word when it makes perfect sense and when it doesn't. I'm going to trust him when I know exactly what's upcoming. And I'm going to trust his word when I don't have a clue what's upcoming. Because he is, as the Psalms say, he's true. He's eternal. He's good. Why would we not trust in a God who is forever and yet present with us? Wholehearted worship means we trust His Word. Wholehearted worship also means, finally, we live in awe. Verses 8 and 9, They are established forever and ever, enacted in truth and in uprightness. He has sent redemption to His people. He has ordained His covenant forever. His name is holy and awe-inspiring, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Our God is awe-inspiring, and John hit on this in, John, in, uh, in Psalm 66 last week. But to fear the Lord means we live in awe of Him, in reverence of Him, in respect of Him. When you consider His works and what He has done throughout the testimony of Scripture and what He has done in our own lives to restore us back to relationship with Him, it should lead us to this humble posture, knees bowed, looking at our king, in awe of our king. Think of that picture, that regal, royal king. Splendor and majesty are his. Holiness and truth are his. Goodness and compassion are his. Hebrews 4 tells us that Jesus, the Son of God, even though he was tempted in every way that we are, remained without sin. 
unstained, unblemished, perfectly righteous, and through him as our high priest, through him, through the cross, bridging the gap between a holy God and an unholy people. Through him, Hebrews 4 says this, we can approach the throne of grace with boldness so so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So we approach that throne, not flippantly, not disrespectfully, but also not in terrifying fear because it's a throne of grace. Thanks to Christ. Not thanks to us, thanks to Him. And we approach the throne as people who are in need, coming to Him because we know that help is only found in Christ alone. So let me ask us a question this morning. In your life, where are you withholding praise from Him? Is your heart divided somehow? Where you've tried to, again, quarantine off a part of your heart away from Him? Where's the Lord calling you to repentance this morning? May we be a people who study and delight in Him, a people who remember His works, a people who trust in His Word completely, and a people who live in awe of Him. There in verse 4, he says again, He has caused His wondrous works to be remembered. Brothers and sisters in the Lord, do you remember Do you remember? Do you remember how good and gracious and compassionate and powerful the Lord has been, not just in your past, but in your present? For me, I remember the Lord being gracious to me when I was an arrogant sophomore in high school and thought, I don't need His grace and forgiveness. Where the Lord specifically called me to repent and believe in Him, and I specifically said, no. Because I thought my work, little pea brain, finite Dave Steinbeck's work, was somehow greater than the King of Kings' work on the cross. Sounds silly. Sounds foolish. It was. But the Lord is gracious to me. I remember probably about a year later when the Lord was, again, gracious to me to bring yet another person into my life who had the courage to share the good news with me that night, and the Spirit saved me. I remember the Lord protecting me from my own fleshly desires that would have destroyed my life, not just as a teenager, 20s, 30s, now I'm in my 40s. I remember the Lord being exceedingly generous to me to bring a godly woman into my life who is now my wife of nearly 24 years. I remember the Lord being my comfort and strength in the loss of dear friends who I still miss. I remember the Lord answering specific prayers as a parent from conception to present day 2020. I remember the Lord providing for our household when it seemed like a mathematical impossibility. I could go on. I pray you could as well. Do you remember, believer in Christ? Have, has the chaos or the distraction of this world caused you to forget how good God has been to you? If you've begun to forget I encourage you to get home this afternoon or this evening and begin to write. Begin to write evidences of his work. Ask the Lord to recall these to your mind and be reminded of his wondrous works in your life. But this psalm is not just a personal psalm. This psalm is a corporate psalm of praise. 
So Crosspoint, do you remember? Whether you've been here for many years or you've been here just a few days. Do you remember how the Lord has been faithful to his people collectively? I remember the months leading up to the launch of the church, inviting people, trying to fix up a rundown storefront so it wouldn't look so rundown, and praying and praying some more. And by God's grace, people actually came. They walked in this glass door that had a funny logo on it and said, okay, here we go. And the Lord provided. And the Lord was, was gracious. And the Lord began work. I remember counting the offerings early on and thinking, okay, Lord, you're going to have to provide. And you know what? For nearly 17 years, we've been praying that. It wasn't like at year five, it said, oh, thanks, Lord, we got it from here. No, for 17 plus years, we've said and begging God, God provide. And you know what God's done? He's been faithful. He's provided. He's always met needs. He's allowed us to plant a church. I remember moving to the middle school and going mobile and, and the Lord providing generous space and willing volunteers and the Lord growing his church. I remember the Lord calling out Pastor Jeff to a mission field and then throughout the years calling various staff to serve in various ways throughout the years. I remember the baptisms of many of you, your testimonies of sharing, whether that be in storefront, middle school, or here. I remember the Lord providing this space and this property in miraculous fashion that no one could have seen coming. I remember the Lord orchestrating a church plant in Manunk that we could never do on our own, but in partnership and kingdom mindset with other local churches, the Lord could do this. I tell pastors that, I tell pastors unrelated to this, this partnership, that, and they're like, this just doesn't happen. You're right, sadly it doesn't, but it does here. Praise God, all glory to him. I remember the chief shepherd, Jesus, taking care of building his church now, and he will for as long as he may tarry. I could go on. I pray you could as well. The stories of our individual lives, our households, our household of faith continue today. The Lord is still at work. He's not done. If the worship team could come back up. Hallelujah. I will praise the Lord with all my heart in the assembly of the upright and in the congregation as a way of life. And we will do this for now, forevermore. We will worship him as a way of life when we leave this place. We will worship him when we gather back together next Sunday and every Sunday afterwards. May we worship him wholeheartedly, all in, holding nothing back. Father, may you be glorified by our lives as we leave this place and as we gather back next Sunday. May we worship you. May we be worshipers who live and give, who trust in you. May we be worshipers who study and delight in you that as we open up your word, we see it not as a task to, to accomplish, but as an opportunity to grow in our enjoyment of you and our understanding of you. May we be people who remember your works. May we be people who trust in your word completely because you are eternal and may we live in awe of you. When we are tempted to live in awe of lesser things, we confess that and long to have eyes fixed on you and you alone. Be glorified, be exalted, be at work, and may it all be about your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.